This episode of We the People is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, a new video learning service featuring more than 5,000 lectures taught by award-winning professors and experts. To begin your free one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com people. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com people. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we talk about the Roberts Court at 11. On September 29, 2005, John Roberts was confirmed as Chief Justice of the United States. We're joined today by two of the leading commentators on the Supreme Court in the United States to assess the Chief's legacy after a decade. Joining me in studio is Adam Liptak. He is the Supreme Court correspondent of The New York Times. And joining me by phone is Joan Biskupic. She is editor-in-charge for legal affairs at Reuters News. Adam, Joan, thank you so much for being here. Great to be thank here, you, Jeff. Jeff. Um, you are the two of the most astute commentators on the court in the world, and I'm so eager to have this conversation with you because I need your help in answering the following question. Has Chief Justice Roberts fulfilled the promise that he made when he first took office to preside over a court that avoided ideologically polarized five to four decisions and instead uh, convinced his colleagues to converge around narrow unanimous opinions. I'm especially interested in this question because I had the incredible privilege of having an interview with the chief soon after he took office. It was published uh, both in The Atlantic and, and as part of uh, a book I wrote as a companion book to a PBS series on the court. Uh, with the incredibly cutting-edge title, The Supreme Court, uh, the, the Personalities and Rivalries that Defined America. And in that interview, the chief said, I think it's bad for the court and bad for the country if there are a lot of five to four decisions on ideological lines. I'm going to try to persuade my colleagues to converge around narrow unanimous opinions. He embraced as his model his greatest predecessor, John Marshall. Uh, he said, I'm not comparing myself to Marshall, but I think it's important for the court in these polarized times to be seen as above politics and he recognized that it was a hard task, but said he was going to try. I have to say, I, uh, I was very impressed by the chief during this interview. Some of my friends decided I developed a man crush uh, on him. And I basically think that he was uh, sincere in his promise and that he's had some success in meeting it. I was struck uh, last term in both his Obergefell and King v. Burwell, the health care and the marriage equality decisions, with a kind of principled commitment to judicial deference embodied in uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who he cited uh, repeatedly. There is a strong case on the other side, cases like Shelby County, the voting rights case, and Citizens United, the um, campaign finance case, suggests uh, a lack of deference, and those were five to four ideological decisions. So I want both of you to tell me what to think. And let's begin, Adam, with you. Has the chief been true to his pledge to create narrow, unanimous, nonpartisan decisions? Uh, the chief has failed. Uh, the, the last decade of Robert's Court's decisions were, were marked by uh, major ideologically divided five to four decisions. But that doesn't mean he failed in a pledge. For all we know, he's done everything he can, but he only has one vote. He has the limited power when he's in the majority to assign the majority decision. But beyond that, he deals with the court as he finds it. Uh, in some cases, uh, I think he has cast his own vote in ways that might uh, be thought to preserve the legitimacy uh, authority and prestige of the court, but he's only got the one vote. 
Uh, Joan, do you agree or disagree? I do, and I would follow up on Adam's remark that he deals with a court as he finds it. He also has to deal with cases as they come to him. Uh, he, I'm sure, loved to have uh, cases that aren't as polarizing as they've been uh, because that would make it easier to have unanimity, to bring more consensus to the nine. But he has to deal with cases as they come to him. And uh, we've had a lot of tough issues involving abortion, race, and religion where he has ended up tacking to the right and uh, been unable to really get the kind of consensus that he would want, in part because of the dilemma before him. Uh, I think that on the federal power and the relationship uh, among branches of government, those are the ones where he, I think, has more leeway to bring consensus among the nine. And I think we've, we saw that in a few. Uh, we also saw that he was able to do it in a couple cases that then led to different kinds of rulings. Uh, Adam mentioned the Shelby County Voting Rights Act case. When that first came to the justices uh, in 2009, uh, a version of the dispute, he uh, brokered a compromise. But we saw that, uh, that certainly go in another direction when we got to 2013. Um, Adam, Joan makes a good point that there are several cases where Chief Justice Roberts initially created a version of unanimity, although I think our colleague Dahlia Lithwick has called it phonanimity, only in a subsequent case to reveal the ideological divisions. And voting rights is one where the Namundo case, uh, which was eight to one, gave rise to the five to four Shelby County case. And uh, another one was uh, the campaign finance cases where an earlier version of uh, Citizens United uh, uh, duck the central constitutional issue only to have that revealed in Citizens United. Adam, does he get any credit for these? Uh, and I think uh, Chief, uh, Justice Scalia has also called this faux judicial restraint. Uh, does he get any credit for it or is it just temporizing? I'm not sure whether credit or blame is the, is the right concept. I think that one thing to think about the chief is that he's only 60 years old. He's going to be here for a long time. He's not in a hurry as a uh, Justice Scalia or Justice Kennedy might be. So he's happy to take incremental steps, but those incremental steps in the cases um, you mentioned are steps to the right, and we may see another example of this this term where the court uh, brokered a compromise in an affirmative action case called Fisher against the University of Texas. Now that's back at the court, and I think supporters of affirmative action are nervous, and maybe even nervous that some of the language uh, that the liberals agreed to in the earlier decision will come back to haunt them in the later one. Uh, Joan, what what do you make of the health care cases? Uh, in the first health care case, uh, the chief famously cast the fifth vote to uphold the health care mandate on the grounds that it was a legitimate exercise of Congress's taxing power. In the more recent one, King v. Burwell, he looked to Congress's intent in finding that uh, federally authorized exchanges were eligible for tax breaks. Uh, is this an example of the concern for the institutional legitimacy of the court rather than the ideological purity of uh, a particular vision that he promised when he took office, or is, is something else going on? I think that you need to separate the two cases uh, in this regard. The second case, the one just from last term, Justice Kennedy was with him even to vote with the majority, with the uh, liberal members of the court, to reject the challenge, which I think many people had viewed as pretty far to the right. So it wasn't as much of a litmus test as the first Affordable Care Act case. In that case, I think it 
I think his interest in the integrity of the um, the court uh, in an election year, uh, remember uh, when that occurred and uh, how high tensions were in 2012, and that was when he and Justice Kennedy split. I think in that case, Jeff, we did see him looking at uh, the broader interests of the court. And also, I have to say, looking back at John Roberts' record over his three decades in Washington, that wasn't one of his fights. I think the Affordable Care Act dispute of 2012 was just about everybody's fight but his. Uh, his interests are not in the relative powers of government branches uh, as much as they are in some of the social issues. So I think that was part of what we saw in 2012. And again, uh, last term, I think that that was a, an easier vote for him. And it was easy for Justice Kennedy, who so vigorously dissented in 2012, to be with him this time on the Affordable Care Act. Interesting. So Adam Jones makes two interesting points. She suggests that in the first case, it was an election year, and, and these broader concerns about legitimacy had a had a political context as well. And in the second case, it wasn't as tough because he wasn't on his own and had Justice Kennedy as backup. Do you, do you agree? I, I, I never disagree with Joan Biskupic, but I certainly agree with her here. Um, the, the, it's, it's not part of the Commerce Clause was not part of what John Roberts uh, lived and died for. Uh, and he was also alert to how it would look if the five Republican appointees on the court in an election year joined together to strike down a Democratic president's signature legislative accomplishment. Uh, that would have been quite something. Now, in that same decision, he delivered almost everything else he could to the right. Uh, he delivered a ruling on the Commerce Clause uh, that was welcomed by conservatives. He delivered an interpretation of Medicaid expansion, which has caused enormous troubles for the Affordable Care Act. So he's a canny strategist. Uh, I think a good thought experiment is to ask this question. You mentioned, Jeff, that he came on board in 2005. He was initially nominated, you know, uh, to replace Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. And only after Chief Justice Rehnquist's death was the nomination shifted to the Chief Justice. The thought experiment is how would an Associate Justice John Roberts have voted? And my thinking is, there's no way to prove this, that it would have been more conservative. He's a quite conservative Chief Justice. I say he'd be a much more conservative Associate Justice. And the difference is, as you've suggested, that he does take account of the institutional uh, values of the court. That may cause him to alter his thinking in given cases. And one way to demonstrate that is that in most terms, he and the swing justice, Justice Kennedy, are neck and neck for being most often in the majority. Uh, that is uh, partly for the reason I suggest and partly for the assignment power, because if he can be in the majority, he gets to assign the writing justice and that can shape the decision. Um, that is a powerful way of putting it. And uh, Joan, Adam suggests that the chief is acting differently as chief than he might have if he were an associate justice. He said as much in our interview where he talked about the chief having a unique responsibility to tend to the institutional legitimacy of the court in a way that associate justices don't. Joan, help us understand uh, what institutional legitimacy means. Is is this a appropriate thing for a chief to do to think about the court's role vis-a-vis -vis the other branches, or is this just the chief acting politically? 
No, not at all. I think this is a very important thing for him to be thinking of. And he is a man of institutional Washington. He's a man of institutions, period. When you look at his background, the kind of uh, way he came up in Washington, uh, you know, he went to Harvard undergrad, he went to Harvard Law School, he came here, he worked for the Reagan administration, then he worked for the George H.W. Uh, administration, was appointed by the son, George W. Bush. He, uh, he worked for a white shoe law firm, Hogan and Hartson, as it was called then. Uh, he is a man of institutions. He is a man of images. He is a man who uh, will occasionally even tell readers of his opinions how they should understand the court and its rulings. Uh, it's, he is quite self-conscious, I think, personally, but also self-conscious for the institution. And uh, I think that Adam's choice of the word canny is perfect, and I think he's been both canny and at the same time had uncanny timing throughout. Uh, the bench that he's leading was sort of ready-made for him. Uh, Justice Scalia, uh, Clarence Thomas, and Samuel Alito are even further to the right than him. So when he wants to do, uh, if he wants to move in a conservative direction, incrementally as is his way, he pretty much has uh, a full court. What he has to wait for, of course, is, is Anthony Kennedy. And I think that what we're going to see in the next couple of years is uh, more of the rivalry between the two of them over who's really in control. Adam, say more about that and the degree to which uh, the fact that Justice Kennedy is at the center of the court makes this a battle between whether it's going to be the Roberts court or the Kennedy court, and how does that affect Roberts' choices? It's, it's hard to say that uh, the Chief Justice has a lot of control because in so many cases, uh, it's uh, Kennedy's vote that decides. So I think, if I remember right, in the last term, there were 19 five to four decisions. And let me digress for a second and say, because the justices will always say this, there were lots of unanimous decisions. Uh, 40% uh, this, this term, 60% the previous term. They're unanimous a lot of the time. I would add, though, that those don't tend to be the big deal cases. Anyway, 19 five to four cases, 13 of them divide along the classical lines of uh, Kennedy plus the four liberals, Kennedy plus the four conservatives. Last term, he was uh, with the liberals more, much more often than he typically is eight times. Uh, so, but that tells you that appealing to Justice Kennedy is the key on this court um, and that when advocates make their arguments, sometimes it seems they're looking only at Justice Kennedy. And when Justice Kennedy says something, all of the other justices perk up and look over and say, what, 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 what's on Tony's mind? And then very often, the follow-on question from a different justice is, well, as Justice Kennedy just said, and then try to flip it, shape it, convert it to be a winning argument because they themselves, although a court of nine, are in some ways arguing to a court of one. And now a word from our sponsor. I'm a big fan of the great courses. I love learning about so many things. That's why I'm excited about the new The Great Courses Plus video learning service. You get unlimited access to thousands of fascinating subjects. The Great Courses Plus has nearly 5,000 video lectures in subjects like history, science, photography, and more, taught by award-winning professors and experts. With The Great Courses Plus, you can watch as many different lectures as you want at any time from anywhere. Our We the People listeners get a new introductory offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire The Great Courses Plus library, completely free for one month. 
I know you're going to love The Great Courses Plus. Sign up now for your free one-month trial. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash people. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash people. Joan, there were several important cases, as we've discussed, and, and you mentioned where the chief joined the liberals uh, last term. We have the Young and UPS case about pregnancy discrimination. Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito joined the liberals in the Williams U. Lee Florida bar case about the First Amendment allowing uh, banning judicial candidates from personally soliciting funds. Chief Justice Roberts joins the liberals, and there are other cases as well. Are, are, are these examples of the, the chief acting politically? I guess I want our, our listeners to understand when does he choose to join the liberals and when not, and is he guided by his vision of the Constitution or by strategic concerns? I think it's a combination, Jeff, and I think the only way to understand them is to understand them as individual cases. I think the campaign finance regulation in judicial elections case that you referred to out of Florida is a perfect one to understand uh, his larger intentions that you referred to having to do with the institution of the court. In that campaign finance case, it was, he voted for a regulation with the four liberals, and he did it, he said, because, I think I've got this quote right, judges are not politicians. And I, I, that recalled to me an assertion early in his tenure, around the time that you had your interview, uh, you might recall that uh, the chief also sat for a C-SPAN interview. And I remember, uh, and again, I'm, I'm just going to paraphrase this, but I think the, the query was, you know, what should the American public understand about the Supreme Court? And he said, they should understand that they don't elect us. If they don't like what we're doing, it's more or less just too bad. And he said, we're not elected. And I think that that is, is uh, an element that certainly drove his vote in that campaign finance case that departed from the Citizens United uh, spread of cases. So I think that's one, uh, one element that will dictate when he joins the liberals. And the other thing, I, I, the other test to me has been social dilemmas versus powers of government dilemmas. I think on the social ones, such as abortion, race, religion, he's, he's with the right. Adam, when do you think the chief goes right and when does he go left and why? Uh, I, I want to say a word or two more about this uh, judicial uh, campaign finance case. It's quite extraordinary that the chief justice, who's one of his projects, is really uh, deregulating the campaign finance system and allowing money to flow into the campaign finance system should in this one instance say no. And he did that because he thinks judges are different, the judicial role is special. In dissent, uh, Justice Scalia criticized him for becoming part of the brotherhood of the robe. <laughs> and and only, only for the second time in his 10 years on the court did you see a 5-4 decision, uh, the first being the first Affordable Care Act case, uh, a 5-4 decision where the four liberals were joined only by the chief justice. So this seemed to be something he, he quite cared about. I'd also, I think we should try to unpack what we mean by political. It's a sort of shorthand. And I don't think any of us mean partisan political, that uh, the justices are, are consciously trying to adopt the Republican Party or Democratic Party platform. I think we mean something a little more abstract, uh, uh, ideological commitments, judicial philosophy. They often but not necessarily map onto partisan political commitments, but there's something much more complicated going on at the Supreme Court than what the, the raw word political might suggest. Well, let's dig in on this uh, important question. 
Joan, there's a difference between ideological commitments and constitutional methodology. Uh, what would you say that John Roberts's constitutional methodology or his constitutional philosophy is in a way that's distinct from his ideological commitments? Well, I, I do think it has to go with uh, kind of his his barrel his uh, his narrow approach, his incremental um, uh, sense that uh, there is a long game to be played here, and he can he he moves in uh, in certain in certain small ways. Uh, that lead to a broader vision. So I kind of almost separate those two ideas of ideological versus constitutional, I think kind of uh, separate in terms of uh, vision and, and steps in some ways too, because his his constitutional method is to is to go small and to go narrow, but he's always guided by this overarching ideological approach that, as I've mentioned, I think breaks down on two different lines of cases. But he's, uh, he's certainly a student, longtime student of the court who had clerked there uh, under then Associate Justice William Rehnquist, who, as an advocate who argued 39 times before the justices, always touched the, the toe of uh, the John Marshall uh, statue in the, in the lobby as he went upstairs. So he's, he's been thinking of these elements about his overall vision and uh, for a long time. I think he would, I think he would dispute anything we're saying about his ideology. I think he just wants to shy away from that the way um, Adam and I would want to shy away from the political views. I think he wouldn't even want to claim a real ideology, but I think after 10 years, it's definitely there. Adam, how would you describe his constitutional philosophy, and how does it compare to that of his hero, Chief Justice Marshall? I'm not sure it amounts to a philosophy. Uh, One way to think about this is that in the last term, the four liberals were a solid block voting together all the time uh, and often speaking, almost always speaking with a single voice. So there, the ideological range on the left was, was, was nothing. They were all together. On the right, you have two kinds of conservatives. And what you saw over and over in the last term, the liberals issued 13 dissents, the conservatives 40. Even when they agreed, they couldn't agree on what they agreed on. And that's because two of them, uh, Justices Scalia and Thomas, are are more or less committed to the uh, interpretive method of originalism. And uh, Justice Kennedy has his own complicated set of commitments. Um, And Justices uh, Alito and Roberts are quite hard to peg down as what their constitutional philosophy is I don't know that it's results-oriented exactly. People call it pragmatic, which is not very different from being results-oriented. It's, it's sophisticated. It draws on many strands, text, history, purpose, consequences, uh, all sorts of stuff. And that's why I don't have a ready answer to where, what John Roberts's constitutional vision is. Well, let's take a few more beats on it, because if anyone can figure it out, it's both of you. So, Joan, you suggested in cases involving social issues, he tends to defer to state legislatures passing more conservative laws. Uh, But what about his view of federal power? On the one hand, you have the uh, cases like Shelby County and Citizens United where he's quite willing to strike down acts of Congress. On the other, his his quite passionate statements in the two health care cases that Striking down an act of Congress is the toughest thing we do. He quite quotes Holmes on this behalf. He, he's a purposivist in the, in the second health care case, and, and he certainly doesn't seem inclined to strike down as much of the federal regulatory state as, say, 
Justice Thomas. So how would you describe his approach to federal power? Well, I, I, I think it, it's still a bit of an open question for the following reasons. He is a product of the federal government. He's a product of the executive branch, the way he came up uh, to to this spot. Um, he's very much unlike his, his mentor chief justice, uh, William Rehnquist, and associate justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who, who had a real strong uh, state sovereignty, state rights interest as they as they looked at cases. So I, I, I think that he's He's been willing to defer more to the federal government than than uh, his predecessor, and that is a, a natural tendency of his. But I don't think he's as deeply invested in um, in such strict lines and divisions of power as as we'd like him to be, because it, because as you say, we've got examples on both sides, whereas. On issues where he's so invested uh, from the Reagan era in terms of more social policy, I think we see more of a consistency. I thought that of all the cases you've mentioned so far, Jeff, from the most recent term, one that was so revealing was on the question of same-sex marriage because that's when he used his first ever dissent from the bench. Unlike what we saw in the 90s when um, – uh, and even into the 2000s, when a lot of his his colleagues would would take a, a division of um, uh, relative powers of government question and and dissent robustly, he's just not like that. He he used his first ever dissent to talk about the moral question of same sex marriage, and uh, that's why I think it's it's sort of hard to peg exactly where his allegiance is on, on the governmental question. Adam. What do, you, what do you make of uh, his views of governmental power and his same-sex marriage dissent? I want your thoughts on both of those questions. I, I was I was hoping I might ask Joan a question because Joan was in the courtroom when the same-sex marriage case was announced. And right afterwards, Jeff wrote a piece, I wrote a piece making similar points that there was a kind of consistency between the Affordable Care Act and the uh, same-sex marriage cases on Roberts's part in that he deferred to lawmakers and voters. And that came through very nicely in writing. And there was a, a, a sense even that had it been up to him as a legislator, he might have voted differently than he did as a, as a justice interpreting the Constitution. But I wonder how it came across in the courtroom, Joan, when he was talking to a courtroom filled with uh, uh, gay lawyers who'd worked for decades to achieve this long-sought goal. Well... Uh, that's an excellent question, and it did come across differently than uh, the writing taken as a whole, because uh, the themes that both of you talk about in terms of the deference themes uh, come across, of course, in the writing. But as he was speaking, it had much more of a social moral tinge. And as he looked out at an audience uh, that did uh, was just filled in the bar section – so many uh, government and private lawyers who happen to be gay, he's looking out at them and he's saying, uh, you can celebrate this ruling if you want for what it does, for what it says to um, same-sex couples, what it does for their benefits, what it does for social acceptance, but do not celebrate the Constitution. The Constitution had nothing to do with this. So there was a, a uh, an admonishing tone that uh, didn't go to what we're talking about in terms of um, governmental deference. It went more to, um, more to, a, a, as I said, a morality. A Adam, you asked Joan a good question. What do you make of that response? Is, did you, do, do you 
take him to be upset that the court is imposing a, a moral view on the nation and not being committed to deference for its own sake? I take him at his word that he views these as legal issues. The broader question you were asking, Jeff, earlier is how to make sense of this range of cases, whether we can take a, extract a neutral principle from them because they seem to point in different directions. I guess I'd only say that with the exception of the health care cases, uh, they all point in one direction. His voting is conservative. Um, the health care cases are major exceptions, but there are only two of them. And in general, sometimes he's an activist in the sense of striking down laws and overturning precedents, and sometimes he's deferential across those same terms, but they happen to align pretty perfectly with conservative outcomes. John, what about his willingness to compromise? Uh, in the health care case, uh, he joined Justice Breyer and Justice Kagan in coming up with a compromise on Medicaid expansion. And uh, But in other cases, uh, he's proved less willing to reach across the aisle. How does that square with his goal of narrow unanimous opinions, and, and how, how flexible and, and, and willing to compromise is he? Uh, Jeff, I actually think that he is willing to compromise when when uh, it's on a topic that he thinks, uh, as I said, he hasn't dug in as much uh, uh, in, in his prior votes, in his prior life, and also when it's uh, a really politically charged issue. I know in the affirmative action case from the University of Texas, he was part of that compromise that ended up with the uh, uh, seven-to-one ruling. Uh, that was one where Justice Kagan was out, so only eight of the justices were deciding that. We know he doesn't like affirmative action. We know how he feels about racial classifications, and he's uh, he declared, you know, the way to stop discrimination based on race is stop discriminating based on race. But in that case, he was willing to compromise. So I think that what he said to you way back when about seeking consensus and trying for more unanimity to improve sort of the reputation of the court and more clarity and rulings, I think that's still his, his aspiration. It's just that it's, uh, uh, as we said at the, at, at the top of this hour, he has to deal with the justices as they come to him and the cases as they come to him. Adam, what do you make of the sincerity of the vision that he articulated back then? Right now, both sides are frustrated with him. The right has said Chief Justice Roberts is dead to us after the two health care cases, and the left will never forgive him for Citizens United or Shelby County. Do you think he earnestly and sincerely believes that he's attempting to promote institutional legitimacy rather than partisan politics, or do you believe, as his critics do, that he was less than candid in his confirmation hearings? I... I think every single one of the justices earnestly believes that they are doing uh, legal work as best they can and not political work. I think the patterns tend to show something else, but we are all of us unaware of how the our prior experiences and and our worldviews affect what we do all day long. So I'm I'm not gonna I'm I'm not gonna join this idea that in some sense uh, the, the, the Chief Justice was lying. In confirmation hearings and, you know, around that time, people do tend to recite things that we all know can't be so, that there is a single legal answer to a complicated constitutional question that has divided lower courts 
and we'll divide the justices five to four. You just can't say, although they almost all of them do, I take the law, I apply it to the facts, I'm a law robot, and I spit out a result. <laughs> that, that, that can't be right. And yet they're required to say these things, and on some level they believe them. Joan, uh, the chief famously compared being a judge to an umpire calling balls and strikes in his confirmation hearings. What do you make of that analogy 10 years later? You know, I think that's – I would go to the point uh, of just how we all are as people. We, we, we're trying to do our best. He's trying to do his best. He sees him – that was a – it was a great – uh, a great metaphor. I mean, it really worked. Everybody, that's like the one thing everybody remembers from his confirmation hearing is the is the umpire comparison. And uh, I don't know if he would have even bought it fully at the time because really uh, these nine positions hold so much more weight than just calling balls and strikes. But I think it it, it worked. It worked for his audience. It worked for the kind of message he wanted to communicate at the time. And I think he would probably still say it, even though there's it, all these cases and all these decisions are loaded with so much else that each of these justices bring from their own experience, their understanding of text, their understanding of history, and uh, uh, all umpires are not created equal up at the Supreme Court. Adam, can you describe your encounters with him over the past 10 years? Have you interviewed him and uh, written about it? And what light does that cast on your thinking about him? Such encounters as I may have had were probably in settings I shouldn't talk about. Uh, but I view him as a extremely smart, charming man uh, who is a first-rate writer and legal technician. Putting Just as a matter of judicial craft, he's one of the, the very best writers on the court. When you read the facts section of an opinion, which is hard, these are technical cases, and this is just explaining to you what's at issue He's one of the few justices where, from a standing start, without having read the briefs or gone to the argument, if you read the first half of his decision where he's just laying out what the question is, you will have understood it, and you don't need legal training to do that. I would say only Justice Kagan compares to him in that regard. So across a whole range of ideologically neutral measures, I think he's quite impressive. Uh, then when you back into how you feel about the Roberts Court's major decisions on guns and campaign finance and race and abortion and the ones to come, that will divide your audience, you know, in predictable ways. Joan, have you had any encounters with him that you're able to talk about? Uh, I've met with him several times, and I would say that uh, I can see how he works so easily with his colleagues, and uh, I think that uh, it's amazing how much confidence he exuded, uh, you know, when he was named at only age 50, the youngest chief justice in more than two centuries to that spot. He knows what he thinks. Uh, he uh, is incredibly smart, uh, obviously gifted as both a writer and as someone who uh, understands a group dynamic. Uh, he's had to, uh, you know, these they're in their meetings together, just the nine, and he's got to maneuver among all of them. And the times when I've met with him, I have been aware of how how easy it seems for him to uh, sort of anticipate what uh, what you might want to know from him, and he probably anticipates what his eight colleagues want want out of a situation. So uh, he's uh, he's about as up to the task, you know, in terms of the the mechanics as probably anyone we've had uh, in the last century as chief. It's just a matter of then what he does with his vote. 
Adam, when we met, uh, the chief began by saying that it was striking that most of his predecessors as chief justice had been failures, and there were very few successes. Uh, and he said that he, he was going to try to succeed. Uh, will he? You know, there's m- many, many ways to measure success. <clears throat> I think he is thought to be successful by even colleagues with whom he tends to disagree as an administrator. Uh Chief Justice Berger, just a couple justices ago, was famously a terrible administrator and and unreliable and was unable to run the conference where the justices meet in private, just the nine of them, uh, to discuss and vote on cases in anything resembling an orderly fashion. Uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, the chief's immediate predecessor, and now the chief justice himself, uh, are said to be very fair in opinion assignments, very fair in laying out the basics of a case before it's discussed. I'm not sure he's quite as beloved as Chief Rehnquist was as a person by his colleagues, but I think he is viewed as a very capable and fair administrator. Joan, do you think uh, Chief Justice Roberts is succeeding and will succeeding and and will succeed, and and how should we measure success? I I do think you have to look at it in in many ways, uh, both in terms of, you know, the institution, uh, how it's operating, uh, then you look at his individual vote, uh, his relationships among colleagues. Uh, I think it's interesting the the sort of back and forth, uh, but real palship he has with Elena Kagan, who in terms of personality, smarts, uh, calculating, savvy, uh, is a lot like the Chief Justice. Uh, They're on opposite ends of the ideological spectrum, but I think they're both good at working with groups trying to think about what they want individually, but uh, encouraging others to go along. So I think the main way we should measure him when all is said and done might be, what did John Roberts want on the law and how much did he get it from his colleagues? Because, uh, uh, you know, the phrase is first among equals, but he's, he, he needs four. And I think what we'll see uh, at the end of, you know, half decade, another decade is how much his own vision uh, comes through with with the, the whole group. Wonderful. Well, it's time, Adam and Joan, for closing arguments. Uh, this next presidential election, as has been often noted, will determine the future of the court, and the balance could change based on whether a Republican or a Democrat wins. Adam, tell us about how a court that shifted left or right would change the incentives available to Chief Justice Roberts and change whether or not he succeeds. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that the next president uh, will have no more important task than to shape the future of the fabric of the American nation by appointing one, two, three, in a two-term presidency, probably three, maybe four uh, Supreme Court justices, meaning that the political party of the appointing president will have an enormous impact. And I do think that there are cases uh, at risk that if uh, a liberal majority were to dominate the court and thrust the chief into a minority, it would be very hard for him. But I think there are cases like Citizens United and uh, uh, District of Columbia against Taylor, the Second Amendment case, or at least the following case, McDonald, that would be at risk where they're a liberal majority. Going the other way, and we don't really know where Chief Justice Roberts stands on abortion, uh, but there, there's little question that there w- w- it, wouldn't take, it wouldn't take many more votes to put Roe v. Wade at risk. So either way, 
you have a, a complicated landscape for the chief, including one which would be very uncomfortable for him to find himself in the ideological minority. Joan, same question to you and last word to you. How would Chief Justice Roberts's incentives and chances for success change based on whether a Republican or a Democrat wins the next election? Thank you so much, Adam Liptak and Joan Biskupic, for a superb discussion. You have indeed educated me and helped me understand Chief Justice Roberts in a more nuanced light. Adam and I are going to go upstairs and uh, record a talk with Steve Maisie about his new book, American Justice 2015, and you can hear that on our America Live from America's Town Hall podcast. I want you all to read Joan Biskupic's wonderful new book, Breaking in the Rise of Sonia Sotomayor and the Politics of justice. And please let me thank you so much, Adam and Joan, for being here. Pleasure to be here with both of you. Thank you both. Today's show was engineered by Kevin Kilborn and edited by Jason Gregory. It was produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Joshua Weinberg and Daniele Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue today's conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash constitution CTR and on our Twitter feed, at ConstitutionCTR. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Email us at editor at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. Just search for us in the iTunes store. While you're there, leave us a review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the center across from Independence Hall in Philadelphia. Our most recent episode reconvenes Adam Liptak to discuss with Stephen Maisie of The Economist his great new book, American Justice 2015, The Dramatic Tenth Term of the Roberts Court. We the People is a member of the Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at iTunes.com Panoply. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support and we rely on the generosity of people across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our great work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.